681-4328. That's 681-4328 or foskyheatingandair.com. The Light 88.7 FM, WAGP, Beaufort, Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. It may be that you're listening for the very, very first time, in which case for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions as they've been studying God's word. Maybe there's a passage that's been a challenge or you're looking for a biblical counsel or application in a particular area of your life. And so if we can be of help uh, again, locally, 843-525-1859. And while we're here, let me just plug the World Missions Conference. It's coming up in just a few weeks here at Community Bible Church. Uh, We'll have uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer as our keynote speaker. You hear him uh, across the United States every day, and he comes on our station twice a day. What time does he come on, Rick? Well, he comes on at 1 in the afternoon, 1.15 in the afternoon, and then uh, at 8. PM. 8 p.m. All right. So the he just uh, uh, stepped down as the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago and now is kind of an at-large speaker. But he'll be our keynote speaker. And he's a great author, great communicator, and great pastor. So we're excited about having him. And uh, 160 missionaries or so from around the world will be with us. And in fact, if you're listening to me today and you're thinking about world missions... Uh, you'd like to maybe invest in that. I had some people call me from Florence, South Carolina, and they're thinking about becoming missionaries. I said, you should come to the World Missions Conference because there'll be mission agencies from across the United States that represent different continents and countries that will be here, and you'll be able to dialogue and find out what they're doing and what it's like. And so it's really a great opportunity. It's going to kick off with the African Children's Choir on Wednesday night, which has been a huge event, a packed out event in years past at Community. Uh, It's a great, great presentation of these children who come from Africa and uh, sharing music, their love for Christ. And then there'll be events throughout the week. So you can go to communitybiblechurch.us to see the full schedule. But today we're here for the Bible line. We're happy to take any questions that you have. So let's go ahead and jump right in. And by the way, if you want to email us, you can at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. I have a a question about communications about our Lord, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and getting the word out. Uh, I, I get a little confused. Romans ten eighteen, and I, I just want to give you these notes and I'll hang up and listen. Romans ten eighteen, uh, Psalms 19, Colossians, Colossians 1, 6, 
and 123, about everybody will know, the world will know. I'm, I'm a little confused on that. Uh, I think the whole world will know by the Spirit. I said, I don't know. If you could comment, please, and enlighten me. Thank you. Okay, Rick, did you get all those passages down? I think the um, first was Romans see. ten nineteen. Ten eighteen, I yeah, thought, yeah. and then Psalm nineteen. Ten eighteen. And Psalm. Psalms nineteen. And okay. Colossians what? Uh, chapter one, verse six, and also verse twenty three. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. So let me uh, let me uh back it up just a little bit here in Romans ten sixteen. Uh again the thrust of uh, Romans ten is Paul is dealing with why it is that the Jewish people in his day, for the most part, were in unbelief. And of course, uh, he says, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And there's a lot of people like that today. They're zealous for God. The Muslim who straps a bomb around his uh, chest and blows himself up is zealous for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. That would be an extreme case. And of course, uh, the problem was they were not seeking God's righteousness, but seeking to establish their own, their own what? Their own righteousness, a righteousness that falls short of the glory of God. And that, by the way, is why most people today are lost. And so Paul then begins to describe the fact that the word of God had been preached into their mouth and into their hearts uh, through the communication of the gospel. And really, whenever a preacher preaches, he's preaching God's word into people's minds, into their hearts. And because the mouth and the heart are connected, they're often used interchangeably in the Bible. But it's not enough to have a knowledge. You have to respond to the good news. And of course, he says they can't even begin to respond till they hear. In verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how shall you call upon him in whom you have not believed? How shall you believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And so blessed uh, really is the person who goes. Beautiful is the person who goes and preaches the good news. Now getting to your verse, picking it up now in verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news, the glad tidings, uh, the euangelizo, um, the gospel, so to speak. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Surely I say they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But surely I say Isaiah did not know, did they? At the first Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. So it's important first for starters to understand that revelation in God's word comes in three levels. Uh, what we might call uh, common revelation uh, in, or general revelation and then specific revelation. Of course, the uh, common revelation, people often divide into three levels, and that's what I was first referencing. The three levels being the creation around us. Uh, no one is without witness wherever they live in the world because God's invisible attributes, his divine nature and eternal power are clearly seen, Paul says, through the things that God has created and so that people are without excuse. No one can say, is there a God? Does God exist? 
because the creation around us shouts the fact that there is a creator. Did did he mention Psalm 19? Was that one he did, of the? Yes, yeah, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Yeah, so the, that psalm opens with that very truth. That's what we call general revelation. General revelation also comes through what we call the conscience within, and so Paul will argue. Um, in Romans 2, that Gentiles who do not have the word uh, are without excuse because why? The word of God has been written into their hearts. And so all men have some revelation. The third level that revelation comes is basically through uh, the care that God expresses for people. And so some would combine that with the creation, but very often it's divided. And so God's care is seen in that he causes the rain in the sun to shine on both the righteous and the wicked. So um, Paul is making some very, very pointed statements. He said he's, he just affirmed that there's power in the word of Christ or the word of God you could render it really either way because faith is what is, is elicited through the word of God. No one has ever become a Christian apart from hearing the word of God. Even before the Bible was written, God gave his word in many portions and in many ways. Now we have a completed canon of scripture. So someone might reason from that verse, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. Well, since they did not believe, maybe they never really heard. And maybe it was not a problem of heeding, but a problem of hearing. And so Paul makes that a total impossibility here in verse 18. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have heard their voice has gone out into all the earth. And again, uh, if you are new to the Bible, let me just say various publishers do it in different manners. But when the typeset changes, it usually indicates that there is an Old Testament quotation. And the way the NASB, New American Standard Bible does it, is it puts it in all caps. And so that immediately alerts you, it's all in uppercase capital letters, that this is an Old Testament quotation. And if you go out into the margin, it's quoting Psalm 19, uh, one of the Psalms that you referenced here in your call. And so in Psalm 19, it's quoting verse 4. Now, if you know Psalm 19, you might be thinking, well, why on earth did the Apostle Paul quote this psalm as evidence that the Jewish people knew? Well, let me read Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. So through the, through the silent witness of creation, creation shouts. And so in verse four, their line or their voice, um, Paul is actually quoting the Septuagint. So sometimes when you see a Old Testament quote in the New Testament, it will read just a little bit differently. Why is that? Well, because there was a translation of the Bible called the Septuagint. And if you will uh, look carefully in your marginal notes, you will often see that abbreviated as LXX. Uh, it stands for Roman numeral 70 and supposedly 70 men uh, were involved in the translation of the Septuagint. So again, most of us listening today are reading the Bible in English. Why? Because that's our lingua franca. That's our, that's our, that's our language that we uh, read the scriptures in. Well, what language did most people read the scriptures in in Paul's day? Greek, even Jewish people. Greek was the universal language of the day. And that was in the goodness and providence and fullness of time that God sent his son and that 
they not only had a, a, a peace in the empire, the Roman Pax, they had a road system and they had a common language. It didn't mean that everybody spoke Greek, but it was kind of a, a first or second language for most people. And so with that said, it says their line instead of their voice. Uh, but here in the um, um, New Testament, it says their voice because he's quoting the uh, Septuagint. But it means the same thing. Their line, their voice, their message has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. That's the verse that Paul's quoting. So Psalm 19 uh, obviously does not celebrate the spread of the gospel, but it does underscore what we mentioned here, general revelation. And I said, revelation comes on two levels, general revelation that's seen in creation through conscience and through care, and then specific revelation that is through the gospel, through the written word of God. So Psalm 19 isn't celebrating the spread of the gospel, but it is celebrating the universal witness of the creation that God has given us. So Paul knew the Psalm, he knew the context, but he's applying the general revelation that every person on earth has to the specific revelation that every Jew on earth had. Since Paul obviously is speaking of the spread of the gospel, that's the flow. And that's why I took the time to go through the early verses prior to this. Context is everything. Since he's speaking about the spread of the gospel among the Hebrew people. And since he knew the plight, their plight in the first century, that most were lost, most were unbelief. He knew that wherever one could find some kind of gathering of Jewish people, one could find a community of people who had heard the gospel. Just as no one on the planet has been left without witness concerning God's existence as seen in the creation. Even so, he's arguing it could equally be said that no Hebrew person on the planet has been left without witness concerning the Messiah. How so? Because they had the scriptures and their scriptures began shouting Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for Christ beginning in Genesis three. So in that sense, like the Gentile who has the revelation and creation and conscience, they're without excuse. So um, that's what the thrust is here and in Psalm 19 and Colossians and so forth. So I hope that helps get you running there. All right, let's go to the next question. That's an excellent question, really perceptive. That person is reading line by line, and that's what needs to happen if we're ever going to learn God's Word. Indeed. We have a question from a listener in Newport Beach, California. Paul would like to know, is it ever okay to lie? People often use Corey Ten Boom as an example that justifies a lie. What do you think? And thanks for your ministry. Proverbs, of course, is a book that we could read every day, I suppose, right? There's 31 chapters, and so there's a chapter for every day. And if you were recently in Proverbs 12, it says in verse 22, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. So it's never right to do evil. It's never right to do evil under any circumstances. Uh, God never says to do evil in order to accomplish a good end. And so God refers to lying as an abomination and he means just that. So the end does not justify the means. And of course, people often use different examples to sometimes persuade people's thinking. Rahab, you know, um, she is commended in the Bible in the book of James for her faith. Um, and that's what she's commended for, not for her lying, but for her faith, she had enough knowledge to save her. She had an adequate knowledge for salvation and she had to respond in faith. 
Uh, she was a prostitute. She had all those camel jockeys coming through her parlor over the years. And she heard about what God did and bringing the Jewish people out of Egypt and how he divided the Red Sea. And over and over and over again, she heard the stories. And ultimately, she responded in faith. So she had enough knowledge to be saved, but she had a limited knowledge for sanctification. Um, so God is not commending her lie. He is commending her faith. Remember, everything that the Bible writes or records or reports isn't necessarily something that God recommends. God, God writes a lot of things in the Bible that he's not endorsing. It's given by the inspiration of the Spirit so we can see the way people think or sometimes even the way they've sinned. Um, so you can't um, affirm Rahab as an example because God is not commending her lying. He's commending her faith. People often refer to the midwives too in the book of Exodus. And, um, you know, th there's a couple different ways to look at that. Let me, let me just turn there in, uh, to Exodus chapter 1. And again, uh, this is a great question, and it's a question that often comes on the Bible line. People will say, well, is it ever right? And, you know, what about the midwives? Because God, you know, gave an affirmation for the midwives. It says here in Exodus chapter one, of course, there a king arose, the uh, opening chapter of the book of Shemoth. It, it's the first word in uh, the Hebrew text. And so in the Jewish Bible, they call it the book of Shemoth. It's the... Hebrew word for names. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so these folks are multiplying and he's afraid there's going to be more of them than there's going to be of us and they're going to overtake us. So we're told then the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of them whose name was Shipra and the other whose name was Pua. And he said to them, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God that he established households for them. They feared God. They were not about to take innocent human life. And let me just say parenthetically while we're here, it's coming up in just a few weeks on April the 10th. Uh, it's a Tuesday, three weeks from today. April the 10th, 2018, in the South Carolina legislature, actually in the Senate, there's going to be three critical bills that are going to be voted on and all have huge moral implications for the Christian community across our state. One is the personhood bill. The personhood bill would protect children 20 weeks and above from being dismembered. It's called the Dismemberment Act, uh, where a baby is literally taken apart and aborted and uh, discarded as a piece of medical waste. Now, this is a bill that a number of people, Richard Strom and others, Richard Strom has been one of the leading pro-life activists in the state for over a decade. I've known him for a long time, and amazingly, he was elected, and he holds uh, office there in the South Carolina Senate. 
in either case, this is an opportunity for Christians' voices to be heard. And it took a long time to get this bill. And it's at the point where if Christians in mass show up at the state house, 1030 Tuesday, April the 10th, we could make a difference in that bill. There, there's people who are listening to me who have no idea even what their state Senate senators. And we have a state senator here in Beaufort County who every time the man stands up on the floor of the Senate, he pushes medical marijuana. Listen, that's a huge, huge, huge mistake. I thought uh, the presentation you had on Saturday in our network, Rick, I think it was Saturday at four o'clock. I'm not sure what ministry that was, but they did a whole hour long special on marijuana and it's um, uh, it being a gateway drug and the problems that it has created and states that have gone from medical marijuana to recreational marijuana and some now are. Uh, exasperated over the decision they've made. So there's moral issues that need to be heard. So one is the personhood bill. And a lot of Christians, they just don't even know what their senators or representatives stand for. And they need to hear from us. And so if you're interested in going to that, you can call Community Bible Church and we will make sure that you have a pass that will get you into the Senate on that day. The other two bills that will also be addressed. And here's the, here's the deal took years for this bill to get to this point. And if it's not voted on every two years and all the bills dissolve and they go away and you're starting at ground zero. The other bill that's of importance is um, the liquor bill right now. Anyone with a liquor license like Walmart or whatever, they're restricted in what kind of alcohol they can sell, just wine and beer. That's going to change unless we voted down in South Carolina, there'll be all the hard alcohols, whiskey and rum and vodka and all those hard alcohols and convenience stores, anyone with a beer wine license, I'm telling you that's going to just exasperate the problem of drunk driving in our state. More innocent people are going to be killed. The third is uh, child abuse in terms of sex trafficking. Whether you know it or not, South Carolina, I think we're fifth in the nation in terms of sex trafficking. It's absolutely horrible. I mean, people who are raping infant children and the penalty is so minuscule. And so these are three critical bills that we need God's people who fear the Lord, like the midwives, to speak up on. So you can call Community Bible Church at 843-525-1859. That's the radio station. Or you can call the church number at 843-525-0089 and tell them I want to be at the State House that day. And we'll make sure you have a pass so that you can get in. We're uh, 300 and some churches in the Nehemiah Network. We're one of the churches are trying to get 1,000 people to the State House that day. Um, but concerning the midwives, these were women that feared the Lord and certainly they could have told the truth, but it might be equally argued here that these Hebrew women who feared Pharaoh's, uh, wrath, uh, did not call for the midwives in a timely way. Uh, that's very possible. They just delayed the call of the t- of the midwives. We don't even know that the midwives lied as such. It might've been that the Lord made these Hebrew women more vigorous, or it may have been that these Hebrew women, and it would be smart on their part, knowing the implications and the, uh, precarious situation they'd put their Hebrew sisters in who served as midwives. They just waited until about the baby was born. And so, um, and let me just say too, parenthetically, when we're talking about this whole thing, again, it's never right to do wrong. 
Uh, Corey Tamboom, people often use her as an example where she um, is said to have lied to uh, hide the uh, Jewish uh, people from extermination. It, was that right? Well, if you listen to Corey Tamboom's own lips at the end of her life, she said she handled it wrong. Her goal to protect the Jewish people were right, but how she did it was wrong. She should not have lied. It's never right to do wrong. Uh, now, people are not obligated to say what they know. Jesus himself, when he stands before Herod Antipas in Luke 23, um, are you the Christ? He's silent. Doesn't say anything. You don't have to say anything. On the other hand, Jesus calls us when we go out in the midst of wolves in Matthew 10, where he commissions the 70 to go out to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So Corey Tim Boom could have said nothing. She could have just been silent. She could have said, well, what's a Jew? Uh, she could have said, um, no one by that description lives here. There's a lot of things she could have said, but it wasn't right to lie. But her desire to protect Jewish life was the right thing to do. But the means she used was illegitimate. So I know we live in a day of situational ethics. And there was a guy, I think his name was uh, Joe Fletcher. He wrote a book in the 60s called Situational Ethics, which was uh, a book that was broadly published in uh, liberal seminaries across the country. And a lot of American pulpits adopted that. But we as evangelicals believe that when God says something is an abomination, it's never right to do wrong. The other classic case that people often use in terms of deception is during the Second World War. Some Jewish um, people were exterminated. But in some of the prison camps, if you were pregnant, they would let you go. And so one particular uh, lady had a guard impregnate her so that she could be let go and go home to her family. And she thought that that would be a greater goal because her family and her children needed her. Uh, again, it's never right to do wrong. Uh, we can't rationalize God's truth. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next caller uh, dictated their question. Uh, they wanted to, first of all, make sure they knew how grateful they were for your solid teaching and expository teaching of the Bible. And he says that he's learned a lot. His question is, there are some places in the Bible that uh, some can infer to mean you can lose your salvation. We had a question similar to this last week, but uh, th this person's asking specifically about Matthew 24 and 25 and Revelation 3, verse 5. How do we explain these passages are not addressing losing your salvation? Well, a good rule of thumb is you always interpret what is clear in light of what is unclear in light of what is clear. So if you have passage after passage after passage that affirms the eternal security of the believer, if you come to a passage that seems to be unclear, good rule of thumb is you interpret what is unclear in light of what is very clear. The eternal security of the believer was almost a, and sometimes it summarizes once saved, always saved, as a non-disputed doctrine for about 1,500 years of church history. So it's really not until the time of uh, Jacob Arminius who taught that it was possible to lose your salvation. Some people branded him as a heretic. He, they said that he was muddying the grace of God by teaching such a, such a doctrine. 
It is true there are some challenging passages, but passage after passage that affirms our eternal security needs to first be considered. For instance, let me just give you a couple examples on our security. Uh, in John 3, right after John 3:16, the most quoted verse in the Bible, it says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So very clearly, he says, if you believe you've passed uh, out of judgment, you're not judged. Now, there is a judgment, obviously, the Christian faces, and it's a judgment for service, but not for sin. But if you've trusted Christ as your savior, then God has secured you for all of time. Another example, John chapter five Um, Jesus said this, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, not will have, but has eternal life. You see, most people think of eternal life as something way out there in the future. And there are certainly future dimensions to eternal life. But over and over and over again, because eternal life is a relationship with God, Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God. The Bible can say here in John 5, 24, the one who believes has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Very, very clear. So if you can have eternal life right now, how long does eternal life last? Last forever. You can't lose something that's eternal. In John chapter six, just, just looking at one book in the Bible, I, we could go through virtually every New Testament book. But just for continuity and flow, I'll just deal with John for right now. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, because we don't earn it. He gives it to us, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said, therefore, to him, this, by the way, happens after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And the next day he gives a sermon in the uh, synagogue there in Capernaum on the, uh, on the other side of the sea where the miracle took place. They said, therefore, to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered to them, this is the work of God. And it's God's work. It's not ours that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then he makes this incredible statement. All, you know what all means in the Bible? It means all, all that the father gives me shall come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him referring to the father the will of the father who sent me well what's the will of the father Jesus who sent you well this is the will of him who sent me then of all there it is again all means all that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day for this is the will of my father that everyone, you know what everyone means? Everyone for this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. In other words, for Jesus not to raise up on the last day in a resurrected body for heaven, for him not to raise someone up on the last day, for him to lose someone to the eternal wrath of God would be to disobey the will of the father, but he came to obey the father's will. And then a few verses later, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now there's approximately 150 verses in the new Testament, just like this that affirm the eternal security of the believer. There's eight. You could count 10 depending on how you um, look at double passages that 
at first glance seem to indicate you can lose your salvation. So again, if you believe God inspired every word of the Bible, and that's what Jesus taught us. He said every letter he gave an argument for his deity on a present tense versus a past tense. Not I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham. Jesus believed right down to the tenses of a verb to the smallest yod. Yod is looks like an apostrophe in English. It's the smallest Hebrew letter in a tittle. Uh, a, a, a tittle is um, a mark on a Hebrew letter. Um, think about the letter O, capital O and capital Q. What's the difference? One little slash mark. That's the difference between uh, two Hebrew letters like Daleth and Resh, a little slash mark. Jesus said right down to the smallest slash mark, right down to the smallest letter, right down to the tense of a verb, God gave his word. So if you believe the Spirit of God inspired the whole Bible, and therefore it's inerrant, there's no mistakes in it, then you have to come to grips with passages that seemingly are contradictory. So what do you do? You interpret what is unclear in light of what is very clear. So like, for instance, in Luke chapter 8, in the parable of the sower, Jesus speaks about a man who goes out and sows seed. And the reason I'm reading from Luke is because Luke adds something. The Bible never contradicts itself. The Gospels never contradict each other, but they do complement one another. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Are they losing their salvation? No, he's describing various reactions to the gospel. And in the first three soils, he's giving three types of people who do not respond in a positive, life-changing, eternal way to the gospel. And there are some people who have an emotional experience. They receive the word with joy. They believe for a while and it's intellectual only. Sometimes when you see the word believe in the Bible, it's not always in reference to saving faith. In fact, whenever you see the word believe with the preposition in, it's always a reference to saving faith. No exceptions at all in the New Testament. But the word believe alone without the preposition may or may not refer to genuine faith. And so there are some who believe for a while, just like the demons believe and tremble. Are they saved? Obviously not. And so what do I do with this verse? I interpret what is unclear in light of what is very clear. Now you reference a couple specifics. You don't give me the verses on Matthew 24, but I'm assuming for instance, this is one that's typically uh, used and people make, you know, salvation conditional. Uh, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, uh, the mountain that he ascends to heaven from. And uh, this is the final few days of his ministry on earth before he dies on a cross and is raised from the dead, the final week of his life. And uh, the disciples are on the Mount of Olives. And if you are on the Mount of Olives, you'd look right across the Kidron Valley and you see the temple. Uh, it's on the east side and they could see the temple and they said, Lord, aren't those buildings incredible? And Jesus makes a prophecy that is fulfilled. He gave not only long-term prophecies, but short-term prophecies. And he said, do you see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. 
And if you go to Israel and we're going in God willing and just in May and we'll go again, Lord willing, in September of 19, if that's something you're interested in. But we'll go to some of the places where the stones were literally pried apart each and every one in some of the original temple stones are there. In fact, there's a stone that they found in the 1960s uh, that is uh, has a Hebrew inscription on it. Uh, that it was called the place of the trumpeter and it's where the trumpet trumpeter stood to announce the Sabbath or to announce, you know, the high festivals that God had given for the people of Israel. You can see the literal stones. Jesus literally spoke a prophecy that was fulfilled. And as you drop down a few verses later, he says, and, um, uh, in verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness, what's lawlessness? Sin. Uh, John says sin is lawlessness. And because lawlessness or sin is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Now, that seems like conditional salvation. The one who endures to the end shall be saved. Remember the context. He is speaking about people who are going to be alive during the time of the great tribulation period. In fact, verses six through 14 of Matthew 24 describe the first half of the tribulation, what we call the birth pangs of the tribulation. The birth pangs begin after the church is raptured and taken out. Verse 15 describes the midpoint of the tribulation, just as the prophet Daniel tells us the middle of that seven year period, there's an event that takes place in a rebuilt temple called the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel. And then the verses that follow that describe the second half of the tribulation, culminating with the Christ's visible return to the earth, to the Mount of Olives. So what I'm trying to remind you of here is context. So there are people during the tribulation period who are going to see a level of persecution the world has never, ever, ever, ever seen. What it will come down to is you will either take the mark of the Antichrist 666, which we, we will be studying on Sunday mornings. Uh, we'll, we've reached almost the halfway point in the book of Revelation. We start Revelation 11 the week after Easter. God willing. But when we come to the 13th chapter, we'll see the number of the Antichrist names, 666. And unless someone takes the mark of the beast, they will be exterminated. And so Jesus is just reminding us of a principle that's taught elsewhere in the Bible. It's taught, for instance, in 1 John 2, 19. If they were of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they went out from us showed that they were not really of us to begin with. He's talking about people who come into the church and who leave the church, deny Christ and renounce their salvation. And John's point is, is they were never truly saved to begin with, because if you have it, you can't lose it. And if you lost it, you never really had it to begin with. That's Luke eight thirteen that I just read. People who get excited, emotional, come down front in some church, the pastor baptizes them. Uh, the person says that Jesus is now my savior. And then when difficulties come, they end up walking away from the faith. Now, a pastor can only go by what a person says. Now, if a person doesn't know the gospel, then a pastor shouldn't baptize the person. If someone doesn't understand how to be saved, they should never be baptized because understanding precedes conversion. But there are people who understand the plan of salvation, but believe it in their head, but not in their heart. And so they are lost. And so that's what Luke 8 is describing. And that's really, in one sense, what this is describing. 
that if you have it, you can't lose it. The doctrine of perseverance was a doctrine that the Protestant reform, reformers underscored. And by the perseverance of the saints, they did not simply mean once saved, always saved. But what they were underscoring was that if your salvation is real, you will endure. You will persevere. You will never renounce Jesus as Lord. You will persevere to the end. Anyway, so the same with Revelation 3, 5. Um, he, he, it's actually a verse that is teaching eternal security that your name will not be erased from the book of life. You might want to go and download this Search the Scriptures app. If you go to the app store and just type in Search the Scriptures, you want the searchthescriptures.org. We're an organization, a 501c3 organization. And download that app into your smartphone. And then you can click on Revelation 3 and you can listen to the message that I give. And I go through all the ins and outs. I spend about 20 minutes just on that verse. So I think that would be really helpful to you. But again, the principle is you interpret what is unclear in light of what is very clear. Let's go on to the next uh, question. Yeah, another thing about that app, by the way, as well as the searchthescriptures.org website, you can go there if you missed any of the questions on today's Bible line or past Bible lines, uh, we all have them there, as well as the radio station website, Mm. which is uh, wagp.net. And uh, one person did call, and they wanted to uh, get the details again on the date and time for that uh, gathering up in Columbia. uh, Columbia. Yeah, so that's three weeks from today, Tuesday, April the 10th. And so it's a work day, obviously, and so a lot of people... Uh, listening in their trucks, their cars. Uh, some have the radio on low at work. A lot of people listen to the Bible line after they get the podcast. Uh, and I understand you can't go, but there's a lot of retired people who could go. There might be some home educating moms that could go. So there's a lot of folks who, who could go. I don't know, but think I about it. I don't know, it. Pastor. This is big enough that I would take the day off. Yeah, you know, if, if people are able to, it is that important. If you're able to take the day off and go, I would super encourage you to do so. This is like, this is so important. I mean, think about Walmart. Think about the local convenience store where you go in to fill up your car with gas. And now instead of the guy buying a can of beer, he's buying a bottle of vodka. See, that that's what the licensing is going to do. It's going to change in Walmart. You'll see whiskey, rum. This state has been protected by that. And so we, as bad as an alcohol problem as we have, it's not as bad as some of the other states where the liquor laws are freer. And you have to go to certain designated ABC stores in order to get the hard liquor. But that's going to change. And all it's going to take is for God's people to do nothing on that day. And listen, you know, these people are involved in child trafficking. It's just pathetic, the consequence in this state. I mean, it's absolutely pathetic. I won't take the time to describe it, but it's awful. The little slap on the hand that they get. Mm-hmm. And children are being abused and and being used in the sex trade and everything else in this state. And so, again, a lot of you have no idea. There was a pastor who was in Charleston, and I remember calling him a few weeks before he died, pleading with this pastor. He was a representative in the Charleston area. He'd been holding up the abortion bill in, in, in South Carolina for several years. And I pleaded with him. I said, please stop doing this. I mean, how can you call yourself a pastor and do this? Most people have no idea what 
really is going on. And so we need to be aware. So if you're interested in getting a pass for the state house, you can call Community Bible Church or the radio station here. We'll get your name and phone number, and someone will call you back and make sure you have a pass. Let's go to the next question. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to him now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to. Uh, yeah, I know you've addressed this many times on the Bible line. Uh, I was wondering about tithing. Um, I, when I first started, I, I tithed off the net, and God blessed me, but then I felt convicted to tithe off the gross, and so I've been tithing off the gross since then. I know people like Crown Financial and others have mentioned that, you know, you're not required to tithe off of your tax refund because you've already tithed off of the gross throughout the year. And I know, but I also know that you've mentioned, um, I think you said whatever, whatever God puts in your hand or whatever he blesses you with. My specific question is, is what about, um, say, for example, gifts between parent and child, child to parent, child, siblings, etc., on birthdays and Christmas, where it might be cash or gift cards, if you, if you know pretty much what it's going to be every year and you're basically whatever you get, you're, it's almost going right back to them, uh, or do you think you're required to tie it off of that? That's a great question. Um, and again, you know, net. Uh, whatever. Some some of the tax laws get so complicated. So sometimes business people call me and, you know, we, we brought in $3 million into the business and, you know, I tithe off of the $3 million. Well, what did God put in your hand? That's the principle to start with. What does God put in your hand? And you tithe off of that. So for instance, when someone, someone recently just blessed me with a gift card for $25, I tithe that. I tithe twenty-five dollars off of that gift card, two dollars and fifty cents. Um, my mother sent me a hundred dollars. My mother, my dear mother, is ninety-one years old. I gave a tithe off of that. Now, for me, again, it's not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart, and the tithe is the starting place. Now, I won't tell you what I give, but my wife and I have increased on our quote-unquote tithe every single year for the last 25 years, you know, so, you know, one year we said, well, we've been given 10%. Let's go to 11%. Maybe we can go to 12%. Maybe we can go to 12 and a half percent. And we've increased and increased, increased. And I don't want to lose my reward and I want to give in secret. So I'm not going to tell you how much I'm giving, but to me, it's absolutely astounding what God will do. Now, you know, sometimes again, uh, you can get legalistic with it. I mean, the Pharisees were legalistic where they tithed right down to the mint and the cumin, uh, the mint leaves. If they had a little mint bush that had 10 leaves, they gave one of the 10 leaves to God, you know, but their hearts weren't right. And so they were legalistic in the process. So it's not simply an issue of percentages because God says in Malachi, well, you robbed me of the tithe. But then he speaks of the tithe and the offering. So the offering was above the tithe. And so there were ways in which a Jewish person could show the generosity of their heart. For instance, if they had a field, God said, um, don't harvest right to the edge of the field. Leave the edges of the field for the widow to come in and to be able to pick, you know, the wheat heads or, or the alien or the orphan in the land. So you didn't harvest and cut 
you know, the wheat, for instance, right to the very edge, you, you left the edges. Now, how big were your edges would say a lot about how big your heart was, right? You know, how generous you were. And so it's not just an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. It starts with the tithe, which belongs to the local church. It doesn't belong to search the scriptures or James Dobson, or it belongs to your local assembly. And that's why it's important that you're in a Bible believing assembly, that you're giving money without reservation, because you know that they represent the gospel and the absolute infallibility and inerrancy of God's word. But there are opportunities sometimes in the church. For instance, we're going to have a uh, an opportunity coming up in April where uh, we're tr- providing by God's grace uh, the scripture to a unreached people group in the world. It's just a, a couple missionaries around. It's just a small group of believers, but they've never ever had a copy of the written word of God in their own native tongue. And so everything that they hear from scripture is verbal. They've never been able to say, Hey, we've got a copy of the Bible where we can read it. So we have, by God's grace, um, paid for as a church and, and people even outside of our church who live stream our Sunday services and other places and other states and even other countries. And uh, we we're able to uh, translate Genesis, Jonah, Ruth. Uh, now we're getting ready in April to unfold three New Testament books, um, Mark, Luke and John, Mark, Luke and John. And so these people for the first time will have uh, the word of God in their in their hands. Now, there will be over 2000 verses in those three books that will need to be translated over a thousand more verses than we had in the three Old Testament books. And it basically costs about twenty five dollars a verse to make it happen, to go through the whole process of translation. It's about $25 a verse. So some people will adopt a verse. That's a offering issue. Obviously you don't rob from Peter to support Paul. We have, for instance, uh, 300 plus missionaries that we support every single month. And if people say, well, I'm going to give this month to the Bakuna people, and I'm not going to give to the general budget then you've robbed from Peter to support Paul. It's an offering issue. It's above and beyond the tithe. Maybe someone will say, well, we can take, I can take a verse. Um, there's over 2000 verses that are going to need to be, someone might say, I'll take 50 verses. I'll take 10 verses. Again, if they took 10 verses, that would be $250 above the tithe. Those are offering issues. It might come to the local church. It might come. I had a gentleman I met on Sunday and he uh, was actually listening to the radio broadcasts in New England and as a result became a Christian and been growing, listening to everything we have at searchthescriptures.org, decided to move from New England to become a member of this church. And he was asking me about supporting the radio ministry. But but the, the front line is your local church. That's where it starts. There might be opportunities above uh, your local church that God enables you to give. So yes, you know, you should think big. Um, uh, you know, if, if you have a, it's less of an issue now because interest is so small in terms of what it pays, uh, in, um, in the bank, but I'm sure that's going to change here at some point. If we keep going into debt and digging a deeper and deeper hole, Uh, There's going to have to be motivation for people to save and buy government bonds so the government can still keep doing the stupid things that they're doing in terms of spending money they haven't earned. 
interest will eventually go up. But if you make even interest off of your um, money that you have in the bank, you tithe that. If you made $100 in interest last year, then you would tithe $10 to the Lord's work. So yes, uh, you always give at least 10% of what God entrusts to you. Again, I'm not being legalistic. You know, I don't sit there. Oh, geez, my kids gave me a new tie for Christmas. I wonder how much this tie costs. Well, maybe this is a $30 tie. And I, you know, again, usually it's spendable things, cash things, gift cards, whatever. But if you're giving above the tie, then, you know, it's it's not really even an issue. But that's a, that's a really thoughtful question, and I appreciate that. All right. I, I don't know if we have time for we another do. one. One All right. quick one, I think. What happened to people who died before Jesus was born? Well, um, God has only had one way of salvation for all of time. And anyone that you will meet in heaven will be there because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But there were people who lived on the other side of the cross, and they had to respond to the revelation that God had given up to that point. Many Old Testament saints realized Messiah was going to come. Messiah was going to die. Abraham does a dress rehearsal, so to speak, up on Mount Moriah, the same mount where Jesus dies, of the gospel. Um, he's there in Mount Moriah and he's with a couple of his servants and he's got Isaac and he said, you guys stay here. We are going to return. Well, wait a minute. God had told him to go up there on that mountain and kill his boy. And Abraham was going to do that. He was going to kill his boy, but he believed that God was going to raise that boy up from the ashes of a burnt offering because God said through Isaac, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So Isaac is given wood on his back and he climbs up Mount Moriah and he's a picture of Christ. And Isaac is, um, you know, he's not uh, a 12 year old boy. Uh, He's a young strapping man. The Jewish people say he's 32 in the uh, oral Torah. Um, I, I know he is at least 20 years of age based on the chronology. He could have easily have overpowered Abraham but he willfully laid down his life. He gave his life. He offered himself on that altar and he allowed his dad to place him there so that a knife could be put through his chest because he too was a man of faith and he believed, but it's a picture of Christ. And of course, God provides a a substitute. There's a ram. And where is the ram? He's caught in the thicket. He's got a crown of thorns around his head. Again, a picture of the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus can say of Abraham, Abraham saw my day. How did he see it? Because God had revealed the gospel. So people on the other side of the cross, they didn't know Messiah's name would be Yeshua, but they believed that God would provide a savior. And they responded in faith to what God had revealed. And when Jesus in time and space died, he died for their sins. Just as he reached back into time and dealt with everyone's sin from Adam until the day Jesus came into the world, he looked down the corridors of time, saw your life, my life, everything we'd ever do. And once for all time, he died for our sin. He bore our sin in his own body on the cross. And so God has overlooked the times of ignorance. He's declaring to all men everywhere that they must repent because he's fixed the day in which he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. Have a great day. 